This is Epicenter, episode 340 with guest Daniel Wang. Hi, welcome to Epicenter. My name is Sebastian Cuccio. Today, our guest is Daniel Wang. He is the founder and CEO of Loopring. Loopring is a decentralized trading platform which makes use of ZK rollups to achieve impressive transaction throughput on chain. So, if you want to learn more about ZK rollups, you should definitely go back and listen to our episodes where we've talked about these technologies. So, there was episode 310 with Ellie Ben Sasson of Starkware, or our recent interview with Jin Lang Wang and Carl Flourish, that's episode 336, where we talked about optimistic rollups. A few things to note about Loopring. It is an order book-based exchange, which sets it apart from protocols like Uniswap or the Gnosis protocol. However, the order book is centralized. It's non-custodial, though, which means that users can claim ownership of their tokens at any point. Like I said, it leverages ZK rollups to achieve scaling on Ethereum, and Loopring claims that they can achieve over 2,000 transactions per second on-chain. And they have a strong focus on the Chinese market, which is where the team is based. Sunny and Frederica did this interview, and in the days after they recorded this in early May, a security vulnerability was identified by the Starkware team and reported to the Loopring team. The posts detailing that bug are linked in the show notes. The vulnerability concerned the wallet front end, and as far as we know, the smart contract code was not at fault. So in short, the wallet generates a key pair to conduct snark-related operations, and these keys were generated in 32-bit space which is quite insecure because one could compute all of the possible account keys in the system. Daniel mentions in the interview that they audit every new release, but I wonder how this sort of thing could possibly be missed. Perhaps the front-end wallet wasn't part of that audit. In any case, once again, I think this shows the fragility of DeFi infrastructure. I don't know how we get around this, but every so often a vulnerability is discovered or a DeFi protocol gets attacked. And if trillions of dollars of financial value are to one day live on DeFi, the ecosystem needs to be much, much better at security. Here's what you'll learn in this interview. Daniel's background and how he became involved in crypto, Loopring's 2017 token sale and why they needed to return funds to investors, the concept of ring matching, which existed in the early Loopring protocol, Loopring's use of ZK rollups to achieve scalability, current throughput and transaction costs, Loopring compared to Binance and other centralized exchanges, why they chose to build on a centralized order book model, the difference between optimistic rollup and ZK rollups, the Loopring token, LRC, and how it's used in the protocol, and Daniel's views on the future of the DEX ecosystem. Just a few housekeeping items. I am participating in two conferences in June. From June 1st to June 3rd, Mainnet is happening. Mainnet is a conference organized by Masari. And on June 2nd, I'm really excited to moderate a fireside chat with Joe Lubin of Consensus and Danny Ryan of the Ethereum Foundation. As this comes out, you can still get your early bird tickets for the next two days. They're only 50 bucks. Uh, Yeah, I think it's really worth it. It's going to be a great conference. Head over to mainnet.events for all the details. And then a few days later, I am going to be moderating a panel at the Web3 Forum, which is part of COGX. That's from June 
8th to June 10th. And we're still putting the panel together, but it will be on the topic of freedom versus civic duties. So that should be a lot of fun. And once the panel is officially announced and on the website, I'll let everybody know. So you can register for that conference at web3forum.org. So last week, I made a plea to all of you to give us more iTunes reviews. Well, you have come through and answered my plea. We received a handful of new reviews, which is really great. I'm really excited to see them coming in. I have a little Slack notification when we get new reviews. And every time that thing rings, I'm like, a new review. And I go read it. So thank you to those who left us a review. If you haven't left us an Apple podcast review, please do so. Please take two minutes, go into your Apple podcast app on your Mac or on your phone, and just leave us a review. Tell us what you think of the podcast, how long you've been listening, what you've learned, your favorite guests. It can sometimes be difficult to think about what you want to write in a review, but you you can write about all these things. So yeah, I would really appreciate it if more of you would leave us reviews, and you can do so really easily by going to epicenter.rocks slash Apple, and that takes you right to the page. And as a gift, as a small token of my appreciation for leaving us an iTunes review, I'll give you a discount code for a free KeepKey hardware wallet. Just send me an email, sebastian at epicenter.tv. Tell me like, hey, I left your review and I will send you a discount code for 100% off on your KeepKey hardware wallet. So for the last couple of weeks, I've been telling you about Least Authority and they had a webinar in late April to educate people about security audits and what that could mean for your project. Well, that webinar is now available on their YouTube channel and on their website if you'd like to take a look at it. And it's been really great to work with them because it was such a mission-driven team. And they're working on privacy-preserving technologies. And their latest project is one that I find really interesting. It's called ZCAPS, or Zero Knowledge Access Passes. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about how that works under the hood because I probably wouldn't be able to do a very good job, but I'll tell you what they do. So zero-knowledge access passes allow developers to create services where the payment data is disconnected from the customer data or the service data. So let's say you're running a password manager application and your customer data is encrypted on your servers. By using Zcaps, you could allow for customers to use that service or effectively take credit card payment for that service and you issue a token, and this is a zero-knowledge token that they can then use to access the service, but you don't know which token is used with which account. So effectively, you disconnect the service data from the customer data. So it opens up lots of possibilities for companies to provide even more privacy to their customers and perhaps even censorship resistant because there's no way for you the service provider to connect the payment data and the customer data these are the kinds of privacy preserving technologies that least authority are working on and if you want to know more about zcaps go to leastauthority.com slash zcaps that's z-k-a-p-s and with that here's our interview with daniel wang so we're on today with Daniel Wang, who is the CEO and founder of Loopring. So Daniel, it's great to have you on. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in the space? So I have uh, a technical background. I graduated from uh, University of uh, Science and Technology of China, and then I uh, got my master 
from Arizona State University. After that, I had been working for Google for Chinese e-commerce company called JD.com. So basically, uh, just uh, working on the backend systems.、Uh, back in 2013, I purchased my first Bitcoin after reading their white papers. I got this news from the CCTV, you know, the Chinese Central Television, pretty big、uh, TV in China. They covered Bitcoin a little bit, so I got、uh, really interested in the e-money concept. So I read the the white paper like three times、uh, that night, and then the next morning I purchased some Bitcoin. I still have、uh, those Bitcoin in my wallet. Then I talked to a VC, say you know the Bitcoin is really、uh, fascinating. I want to create a centralized exchange. At that time, it, it was not called centralized exchange; it's just crypto exchange. And then I raised、uh, about two million US dollars and I、uh, launched the small exchange where people can trade Bitcoin. Some other altcoins like Mastercoin, Ripple as well, but、uh, the platform really didn't go well. We have a really terrible period of time where Bitcoin the prices collapsed. So I closed the company. I joined a, another、uh, high tech company called Zhongan dot com, which is an insurance company. So internally, we use blockchain technology to do some internal cool stuff. But、uh, I don't really enjoy time, you know, working with、uh, corporations. So in、uh, 2017, I、uh, think maybe it's time、uh, for me to, you know, start using Ethereum or smart contract to build something cool, something related to trading. By the way, I'm one of the early investors in Ethereum. I still hold those ether as well. So basically,、uh, my career starts, a、uh, crypto career starts from. Buying Bitcoin and then investing in Ether and build centralized exchange and then the decentralized exchange. So that's where you know I started the crypto life. What made you transition from the concept of a centralized exchange to a decentralized exchange? People are talking about security, but at that time, really, is the pain point to maintain a centralized exchange is the continuous worrying about your. Capability of keep the user's assets secure because you don't want to wake up in the morning and then suddenly realize all the assets are gone and then you have to you know take a hold accountable for everything happened. We consider from our own from an operational perspective, we don't want to have that、uh, pressure to、uh, work against、uh, hackers because you know you have to invest a lot of money into the infrastructure to make sure the security of your exchange is good enough. So security is, from my perspective, is always tied with cost. I think it's still true for many centralized exchanges. And then we also need to consider from the user's perspective. Most crypto exchanges, especially those you know back in twenty fourteen thirteen, they are not regulated at all. So if as a user your asset got stolen from a centralized exchange, there's nothing you can do. You can just complain with the operators of the exchange and no more. The assets are gone, and you know that's the final ending of your story. So I think maybe we can、uh, use smart contract to do something that the hacker cannot, you know, steal from exchanges. So you know, back in 2016, I think、uh, early 2017, we had this idea of、uh, looping to make sure you know some work can be still done off chain, but the settlement part, especially you know the fund movement between different users, can. Be done on chain, 
So I think our project is a little bit later than uh, Zero X. And then at that time, people are talking about this concept of uh, decentralized exchange. So I think in general, uh, security is something we really want to achieve to make sure you know, people, uh, they use blockchain or smart contract technologies to treat some assets that are backed by those technologies as well. I always said it is ironic to say you believe in blockchain technology, but you have to trade on centralized exchanges with the traditional technology. That just means the blockchain technology is not that ready yet, right? So we need to figure out a way to push this technology further to make sure it's usable. Uh, first for our crypto holders ourselves, not to just talk to some uh, industry to say, hey, I, I want to revolutionize your industry by this cool technology, right? We have to solve our own problem first. So that's why I focused on exchange instead of other applications. We'll deep dive into this in a bit. Let's just get the rest of your backstory on tape. So basically, you, you actually did a token sale in 2017, just before China actually had this blanket ban on ICOs. And you were actually forced to refund most of your ICO proceeds, correct? So tell us about that time. That must have been crazy. Well, it's a story really I will recall many times during my life. So we did, did uh, do an ICO back in uh, 2017, I think in June or July. At that time, Lupin only had uh, like three or four full-time personnel. We raised 120,000 Ether. We didn't really expect that many. We set a hard cap. So after that, nobody can put more money there. And we raised that uh, hard cap. I think we are also one of the first projects who performed the ICO using smart contracts. So we didn't really have any platform to use. We read a smart contract. We have a one-page website, and people can just um, check the, the tokens they received and how many tokens are still there for sale. I think that experience is pretty cool. It makes me feel you know, in the future, maybe uh, fundraising can be as simple as what we have done. But... Uh, Later on, you know, people have uh, you know, gone to another approach uh, using uh, some big platforms like Binance to raise money. I think it would make more sense because there are more users. But uh, I think with our approach, you know, it's just uh, very cool. One week after the, the close of the ICO, we got a notification from a regulator say you have to refund. And uh, I was told my name is on the list, like a two-page uh, list of people who have conducted ICO. And if I didn't do the refund, then I will be in serious trouble. I cannot leave the country. I cannot do blah, blah, you know, a lot of things. I was really terrified, to be honest. As an individual in China, and if you get that kind of like pressure from the government, you will have the pressure. It's not like in other countries. You can hire a lawyer. There's no way you can fight back. You have to be responsible for that. So I said, okay, I don't want to be put into jail. I don't want my... Uh, staff to be put into jail. So let's do the refund, right? So we have to write another smart contract. We have to tell our media friends to say, hey, we want to refund. And just tell as many people as possible. So we collect uh, the token and then we refund the rest uh, easier back to uh, many users. I think it's 80% or something like that or 70%. I cannot recall exactly. The users have to trigger this? So did they actually have to send back the LRC tokens to you and they were then refunded their Ether? 
In most cases, yes. But there are some cases where it's not uh, individuals, it's some small companies who helped us to do the marketing and we have to fight with fight them to get the token back. They don't want to give the token back. They just want to hold the token. As, and in meanwhile, they want to get the, the money back. So there are some fight back, you know, some fightings between those partners. But uh, most people, most individuals will just give back the token and then get the Ether back. We also uh, rewarded some individuals who helped us to uh, coordinate the process. So we didn't ask everything back. But in general, I think a large portion of our tokens are returned. And as a result, we returned about 70 to 80 percent of the Ether. I think most uh, people who uh, didn't really return Ether as individuals are from countries outside of China. So they are not Chinese, so they are not scared by the media. Uh, right now, I think it's, it's a luck for us. Otherwise, uh, this looping project will certainly go down. At that time, we just uh, finalized one idea uh, in terms of operation and marketing. We don't want to spend those as much money as other project team will do on marketing. So most money are spent in R&D. I think that's why you will hear some people say, hey, White Blueprint doesn't really do any marketing or stuff like that. And people say, hey, why don't you, especially those people in China will say, why don't you pump your price and then do something, right? We have been holding this token for so long. And you, every time you have, you just talk about, you have a new version, you have a new feature. We really don't care. We just care about a price. So that's the fact in China. Most people are speculators. They really don't believe in anything. So uh, making a profit is the most important thing. It's a, a pressure for us during the last uh, two years. I get that sense too, that like, you know, there's sort of very few technically focused, legitimate projects coming out of China. I think you guys are definitely one of them. Let's jump into the, some of the details of the product. So first question would be, why did you guys decide to build sort of a DEX protocol? So why not, instead of like it's going out and building a DEX, why take sort of the more zero X like approach and build a platform for DEXs? The first two versions of Loopring Protocol is really similar to zero X. The one huge difference is that we have this concept of ring matching where zero X only has like two other matching, right? So this ring matching is a distinct feature that we offered. But uh, besides that, there's no difference between those two projects. Could you describe a little bit about what ring matching is? In a traditional trading pair, you have uh, two tokens uh, swapping with uh, each other, right? Uh, with this ring matching, in our implementation, we can have up to 16 different tokens or 16 different accounts they can you know, swap tokens in a ring, right? So people can, or the relayer can look into different markets and to achieve this arbitrage in one atomic operation. So let's say Alice and Bob and Charlie, these three persons can be put into one ring so that they can do swapping as atomic operations. There's, you don't have to do like two trades or three trades. So like Alice wants to buy Bitcoin. Yeah. Bob wants to buy... Ether and Charlie wants to buy Litecoin and, you know, maybe they're not selling what, so you can kind of make a triangle trade. Exactly. That will be effectively just do arbitrage, right? Just very much like arbitrage. Uh, the downside of that 
is the matching is really complicated. Is uh, it will take more time to find the best deal when the number of participants increase in the ring. Is it like some sort of NP complete problem? I'm not uh, good at that theory, so I'm not sure about that. But the time should be exponential. It's an NP hard problem. All right, thank you for that. I didn't know that. So later, I, we um, you know limited the number of participants into eight instead of sixteen. Didn't really support that ring matching in production because the backend or the relayer team really has a different time to find a good algo for to support that. That feature really didn't justify looping as a independent, a separate protocol, right? So we should do something different to make sure looping can still survive. So that's the the challenge we had like two years ago or one year and a half ago. Right now we have the third version of the looping protocol, and the, the ring matching is totally gone from this version because it's not something we want to achieve.、Uh, but we keep the project name there. In principle, the ring matching is a very powerful concept in that it kind of pools your liquidity across different token pairs. So basically, especially in a world where there isn't one dominant trading partner. So, for instance, in a world where you have many different stablecoins, for instance, this ring matching is super powerful. So, do you intend on picking up on this eventually again, or do you think it's just given up on it? I think we are going to give up on that, and I do agree. Uh, for stablecoins, this ring matching really will bring a lot of value, especially when the trading volume is going to be huge. So that application, I think, is still、uh, very、uh, usable. The reason we want to give up the ring matching is because, in terms of、uh, zero knowledge proof, there's really no way to implement、uh, the ring matching because we need a lot more constraints than those can be supported by、uh, Ethereum. So technically, we cannot support ring matching more than maybe three or four、uh, participants in a ring. So we gave up that because we right now are just focusing on zero knowledge proof based solution, not、uh, using smart contract a lot on chain. What was the problem that ring matching was trying to solve? It seems to me that most exchanges, even decentralized exchanges. Usually, take an approach where they use like base trading pairs. So, for like for even Uniswap, for example, if you require all markets to use ETH as a base trading pair, somewhat solve this fragmented liquidity problem. You know, it has this higher overhead of people may have to do two trades instead of one. But why did you decide that you know ring matching was something that needed to be done, and why did you think it was sort of superior over just the base trading pair model? Back in 2017, we think the ring matching may help user to find the best deal. If you don't support ring matching, it's not、uh, the user who will benefit from best price. It's the arbitrar, the people who do the the arbitrars who will get the best, the get the differences between the best price and the price that the normal user can get from the exchange. So, if a centralized exchange can support ring matching, then the user will certainly benefit from that. Reality: Most centralized exchanges don't do that、uh, because it's going to make the system more complicated. They cannot put、uh, a match engine as per trading pair, right? And they have to consider all the liquidities across trading pairs into one huge liquidity pool, and then make sure they can find the best ring among up to hundreds of trading pairs. 
that's a problem. The it's not going to bring more benefit to the exchange cash flow. That the investment into that is more than they can earn. But、uh, with smart contract, we think、uh, maybe in the future, auto bot trading is not going to be dominant because I I really don't like uh, uh, the Wall Street、uh, being dominated by trading algos. I think it should just be user who trade, not、uh, high speed trading. I think smart contract because the trading fee is you cannot just ignore the trading fee. So probably algo trading is not going to be popular. So real user trading, they can use this ring matching. Maybe they can benefit from that. And DEXs obviously also don't lend themselves to high frequency trading, right? Because basically the minimum time you have is the block time, and basically everything that happens in a block happens de facto instantaneously. Exactly. Yes. So speaking of Wall Street, obviously, like you mentioned, crypto exchanges don't really make use of. Like ring trading, but do you know if like is this ring trading sort of paradigm something that's used maybe in traditional financial exchanges like Nasdaq or things like that? Is is it used anywhere else? That I don't know. I think the overall concept is to find the best price, right? To make sure the price you find the best route. In traditional markets, they just do arbitrage. They use more than、uh, multiple trades. To make sure best price is fine, right? With ring matching, basically we just want to make sure you know in one atomic operation they can achieve this. But、uh, the hard, the, the challenging part is that if you talk to a professional market maker to say, "Hey, we have this ring matching cool stuff," they need to learn about that. I think those people are not really good at accepting new ideas. They just want to make sure their trading algos. Can be migrated to you know crypto and then make a profit. What I can imagine is it's probably very useful in sort of OTC desks rather than order book systems. Like if you're running an OTC desk, which is sort of you know lower volume, it might make sense that ring trading might help there. Yes, I think in some、uh, trading algos they have this ring matching algo there, but they don't call them ring matching. They just try to find. Across two markets, the opportunity to arbitrage, right? And they break those opportunities into multiple orders to make sure they have the profit.、Uh, so if you bring those algos into a ring matching relayer and, and make sure in the original order book you can find a ring, then it's it's a ring matching, right? So I think the overall concept is really just、uh, find the opportunities to find the best price for the user and find the the best opportunity to make money. Out of those spreads, I think that's the general idea. If you look at the arbitrageurs who actually spot these rings and execute them, they net the difference, right? In a way, they actually transfer liquidity from order book to order book, but they are paid for this dearly by the user by actually、um, joining the split liquidity across different order books in sort of this ring trading world. You actually make the arbitrageurs. The market makers superfluous to a certain extent, no? Yeah, I think I would agree to what you said. And so, let's say if some centralized exchange、uh, or decentralized ones they offer this ring matching algo in their match engine, then the users will benefit, right? Not the arbitrage because the, the there's no arbitrage opportunity at all because all those opportunities are detected and、uh, used internally. 
by the exchange benefiting the users, not uh, external market makers or arbitrators. To me, this is super interesting because, as the listeners may know, is um, I'm the COO at Gnosis, and we built this protocol named the Gnosis Protocol. And the Gnosis Protocol went the exact other way. So basically, we also looked at scaling and ring trades, and we also decided that we could only implement one of these at this time, and we implemented the ring trades instead of the scaling. But you actually went the other way, and you implemented the scaling. So what you're actually doing is your live version of Loop Ring 3 actually uses ZK rollups. Tell us about that. It's probably because I used to have this small centralized exchange, and I always have this goal to create a DAX that can have the potential to compete with like Binance. It's my belief that it is much easier to convince a user to switch to a new project with a similar user experience than to tell them a very different business model to say, hey, this is where you can do the trades. Uh, the user experience is different, but the goal is the same, right? It's, it's more like uh, you talk to a normal user to use uh, Uniswap. Uh, Uniswap works, it's great, but uh, for normal users, they just hey, this is different. This is not an exchange, right? So they have to take the time to learn the new stuff, which most people, especially those in China, don't want to, to do. They just want to invest, make money, and leave the market, right? So my interest, like at the very beginning of Looping, is to create the exchange to compete with like Binance or OKEX. I cannot say I don't like them. It, they certainly play a very important role in the ecosystem. But I think going forward, if those exchanges are still there, those sad stories will happen again. And that means that we haven't done a good job. So my goal is really clear just to compete with them. So throughput and uh, reducing the, the cost becomes my uh, first priority. Uh, creating something new and interesting is not. So from our experience, at least I think right now uh, we are on the right track. I'm not saying focusing on the ring matching is not a good idea, but it certainly will be challenging even for you to make uh, normal users to use. Can you put numbers on this? So what's your current throughput and what's the cost per order on the current version of Loopring? So the current version is 3.1. The throughput is about 2,020 plus trades per second on the Ethereum mainnet. And the, the settlement per, the cost per settlement is about 0.0002 US dollars. So three zeros after the point. I think it's okay with our new version 3.5, which is just code complete today. The cost is going to be lowered a little bit, but not too far. Um, the reason is that uh, we have been optimizing the protocol so hard that uh, there's little room to, for improvement. But I don't think it's a problem. The cost and the performance or the throughput are no longer issues for us in near term. As you can see in, in some statistics, our in-production throughput is 0.1 trade per second. There's a long way to go before we can reach our throughput upper bound. The cost is okay. Our cost for zero-knowledge proof generation for the Ethereum gas is only about 15 to 20% of our payment to Amazon. So we pay for five times more to Amazon than to like uh, Ethereum gas. So I think those are not, no longer a problem. The biggest problem are like user experience and user onboarding. Those are more challenging. 
right now. So just for a reference point, so you mentioned that your protocol can currently get about 2,000 trades per second. How much do does an exchange like Binance sort of, what's their average throughput? When I owned my own exchange, the throughput is about 100 to 300 uh, trades per second for small uh, centralized exchange. Because um, in reality, you don't want to really put too much because that means more cost investment in the infrastructure, right? So for Binance, I think it will be a couple of thousands normally, and then maybe maybe ten thousands at the peak. I think Binance is is okay because they make money; they can you know uh, scale pretty uh, easily with more investment. But uh, for Loopring, I think uh, the upper bound is the upper bound. Uh, right now, there's there's no way to go even further than two thousand per trades per second. What I'm saying is that uh, a Loopring is as of now, can compete with small or even middle-sized centralized exchanges. But uh, to compete with Binance, you need maybe 10x or uh, 100x throughput. And you may want to reduce the cost per trade even further. So, so right now, it's really not ready to compete or replace Binance. And there's also other uh, challenges, such as cross-chain, right? We are only supporting tokens, ERC20 tokens or and Ether not the cross-chain assets. So that's the challenging part. So the number of orders that you currently process on Loopring is orders of magnitude below what you could in principle do. What in your mind is the principal challenge to adoption for you guys? Because it's not cost, right? It's not cost. First is user experience. So we right now only support MetaMask. We support a Wallet Connect. That's the only two approach to unlock wallets. And especially in China, people don't really use Chrome browser. They don't have access to Chrome store, which means they don't install MetaMask at all. So the user onboarding part is really challenging. People have to get a VPN to access you know, other the internet. So we access the inter-China, the Chinese-only internet. So that part is really challenging for us. Even for people who have access to uh, Chrome and MetaMask, I think they still have to learn something about Loopring, about uh, you know, why should I create a, a trading password? What if I lost the trading password? Things like that. Some, some corner cases scenario. They have to learn how to handle that. And then the most challenging part are liquidity. So right now, liquidity has two sides. The, on one side, we don't support Bitcoin. We don't support those top 20 you know, other blockchain projects, coins. But luckily, we are going to support TPTC very soon. But uh, the, the other side is that uh, initial liquidity is not good enough. We have to work with market makers to make sure they are willing to put their assets into Loopring and do the market making. Uh, we have prepared this liquidity or market making uh, competition to attract professionals to come. But uh, it will take some time and they will have to tell us whether our profit sharing program works or not. For those people, I think making money is important because they are putting their asset, even in decentralized exchange, it also means risk, right? Uh, nothing is safer than putting your asset into your own wallet. So we have to justify the risk and uh, profit for them. Yeah, liquidity is very much a chicken and egg problem. 
So basically, if you look at the loop ring architecture, so basically you, we, we talked about this in the very beginning. So you are non-custodial um, exchange, but I don't need to tell you guys this, but DEX is not a DEX. So basically there's many ways of actually architecting a DEX and you are non-custodial, but you are a centralized order book exchange. Why did you opt for this centralized order book? And what do you think about fully decentralized exchanges? Well, ideally, I prefer to use fully decentralized exchanges because that's what a, a DEX is supposed to be, right? Uh, in reality, it's hard because of the performance of the underlying tech, uh, blockchain technology. Uh, so hopefully when Ethereum 2 comes out, we can have a DEX which is fully on-chain and can also pro provide you know, a better user experience. The order book management, you know, orders are created, are canceled. You know, these operations, if put on-chain, will cost a lot of gas than purely the, the settlement part because the settlement is all the trades have been done and just move the money around. So I think even in the future, even Ethereum has been scaled like a thousand times more, I think moving the order book management, order matching on-chain is still quite challenging. So going forward, maybe some, some uh, like uh, AMM uh, exchange like uh, Uniswap is going to be more feasible in terms of uh, implementation and operational. So, so I don't see in my lifetime uh, the order book exchange will ever be moved fully on-chain. Uh, I think that's just not uh, going to happen. But I do envision a lot of new trading models like uh, Uniswap, like uh, your auction-based uh, best processing ring matching stuff. Uh, it's going to become more popular uh, and, and get some users from the centralized exchanges. I'm not really optimistic about the layer one scaling because I would say even if the blockchain scales a lot more, there will be a lot more applications deployed on top of the layer one system so that the, the gas price will be you know, adjusted according to you know, the consumer and, and you know, the, the miner. So the gas price will not be 1,000 times lower than it is now after Ethereum 2. So I think uh, scalability is not a, a thing you can rely on layer one. So why do you think that most of the on-chain exchanges or like decentralized exchanges in the broad sense, like the order books haven't sort of gotten a lot of popularity yet. So if you look at things like 0x is probably the most popular one, its volume is like much lower. I don't even, actually, I don't even know if it's lower or not. I, maybe it's higher. I don't know. But at, at the very least, like, you know, the mind share is much lower than things like Uniswap or Kyber or you know, things that are taking non-order book approaches. And so why is that? The downside of uh, order book-based uh, exchange with many order books off-chain is that there is no easy way to, to achieve this composability with other on-chain DeFi products. Uh, Kyber and Uniswap, they are really friendly. So it's easy for people to integrate with uh, Kyber with uh, Uniswap, but it's not easy at all to integrate with Xerox uh, or Loopring uh, because when you submit the order, you don't know 
what's going to happen after the submission of the order, right? You don't know whether the trade is happening or not and, and when. But with Uniswap, you are certain that... And there's a high latency as well. Yes, yes. So basically, the, the composability is uh, one issue for any layer two solutions. I think 0x is not the exception. Uh, the other reason that 0x is not going to... Ha- haven't been popular is that for normal users, you know, the user experience of using 0x is far from being ideal, right? So uh, most people actually don't care about security. Uh, most people, I mean, uh, they, they care about uh, user experience. The security part is, you know, if you can offer the same user experience and, and you are much more secure, then, of course, you are a, a very good solution. If you sacrifice user experience, no matter how secure your solution is, you know, people don't get it. People don't want to pay for security. Right? They want to pay for user experience. They want to pay for being able to make a profit. So I think ZeroX uh, and Lupin's early versions, we just uh, cannot uh, meet users' expectation at all. So it'll be fair to say that order book exchanges are sort of have to be a product in and of themselves, while maybe more Uniswap or batch auctions and these things are less of products in and of themselves. They're sort of more tools like as part of a larger DeFi toolkit. And it's how they've differentiated themselves is the composability on chain. While order book exchanges can't use that as a differentiator, so they need to find a different way to differentiate themselves. It is true for now, but I think it doesn't uh, has to be true uh, in the long run. So right now, um, with Loopring, there's no way you can compose with layer one DeFi products. Uh, but uh, with our 3.5 version, uh, we opened a door so that uh, people who deposit their tokens or Ether into our um, exchange contract, those assets can actually work with other DeFi products. So we allow people or the operator of the exchange to make use of those tokens uh, with the user's permission. Uh, and um, on the other side, uh, you know, on layer, layer two side, maybe going forward, there are more layer two composability so that we can have more layer two DeFi products. They interact with each other. So we have interaction or composability on layer two as well. And we have layer layer one composability. So maybe that's another thing maybe will happen soon. Um, but not soon enough because the zero knowledge proof uh, stuff is still is not very developer friendly right now. But going forward, maybe uh, with even even better technology or implementation of uh, zero knowledge proof, this can happen. So yeah, let's talk about that. So how did you guys end up sort of using ZK rollups and you know I guess you guys were using them before they were even called ZK rollups. So from the point that you decided, okay, you know what, let's sort of pivot to focus on scaling these exchanges. What are some of the avenues you explored, and how do you end up on the current solution? The the reason we started investigating in zero knowledge proof is that uh, you know one day like two years ago, I talked to my team to say, hey, are you you know, optimistic about what we are doing? Are you excited? And they 
most of the people say no. Uh, I don't think this is going to work. So, so some people say I, I pretend to be, uh, you know, excited because I don't want to make you sad. So I said, okay, thank you for telling me the truth. We need to uh, figure out a way to to make them change. Otherwise, you know, we are all going down, right? So I did some research. I talked to my uh, chief architect to say, hey, you know, you know what? Spare yourself from the daily life, the, the daily work. Uh, focus on zero knowledge proof to make sure you know we understand the technology and uh, we can we can try to use the technology to make sure we don't use the blockchain itself for computation at all, just for data storage. So, Brecht, uh, our uh, chief architect, spent like three months, two or three months, and then uh, come up with a design. So, uh, I told the team that we are going to switch a direction. Uh, not focusing on zero x like uh, exchange at all. We want to make sure scaling is our priority, not uh, uh, some some other features. It's a gamble. It's a bet. We didn't really know it's going to work out. As a matter of fact, we didn't really have this ZK rollup idea, you know, in our design at all because maybe the ZK rollup term has been brought up, but really we really didn't focus on that. We we just want to make sure you know we have our own solution without be without relying on any other you know ideas. It turns out our solution is ZK Rollup, but uh, you may not know that our solution also has another option to turn the the Rollup part off so that we can only have the ZK part on chain and use a like uh, IPFS or some other decentralized storage system to store the data. So we, if that option is, is on, the throughput is going to be much, much higher. So it, it's a gamble. Uh, it, it's, it's a desperate need for uh, make a change. Uh, otherwise, the project is going to go down. So I don't want to, uh, to, to fail. So, uh, so luckily, we, uh, we found the right direction. We didn't make mistakes in terms of uh, implementation. So I think I would say we are we are lucky and just bold to choose a new direction without consensus from our token holders. They don't really know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. So we've been throwing around the term quite a bit, ZK Rollup. Let's deep dive into what actually is it? How does it work? What is the architecture? So basically, uh, previously, we uh, the other book is maintained off-chain, right? Off the Ethereum blockchain. And then if we find two uh, orders can match with each other, we bring those two orders on-chain. Uh, so the on-chain part, the smart contract, will verify our uh, the, the trade. The orders can trade with each other. We also verify the balances of those two accounts, house-sufficient house tokens, and then they do the actual token swapping. So there are a lot of computations on-chain. Uh, the token swapping is only the uh, only a small portion of the computation, but even with our optimization, it still takes like two hundred to three hundred thousand gas per settlement. Uh, so, so the throughput is really not uh, good enough. So we figured maybe we don't want to use Ethereum for the computation. We move the computation off chain. So the idea is to create a off chain or layer two account system structured in a, a binary uh, Merkle tree. So the leaf of the Merkle tree will be the, the balance of the trading account for each user. 
And whenever we do the trace, we just modify the off-chain Merkle tree and make sure uh, the modification is propagated all the way up to the or down to the root of the tree. And then to make sure uh, Ethereum has uh, the information about the off-chain computation or the account modification, we have to put the uh, the root of the you know uh, the Merkle tree onto Ethereum with a proof to make sure the way we updated the trees are exactly following our protocol, right? And the protocol is actually the, the zero-knowledge proof we call the circuits. Those are actual protocol which make sure in orders are signed by the user and the, the accounts or the, the trading accounts in the Merkle tree has the balance. And after the settlement, you know, those accounts balance are still, they have their tokens, not somebody else who, you know, get their token balance. So all the rules are actually still there, but not on-chain on layer one. It's actually off-chain on layer two. To make sure people are uh, really understanding, people are, are really sure about uh, the rules are installed, are followed, we have to do something called a trusted setup. So we open source the zero-knowledge proof-related circuits and ask people to, make, to, to run the setup to generate a, a random number into the system and make sure it's linked with Ethereum so that all the off-chain parts are open-sourced, audited, verified by uh, third parties. And then we have, uh, after a, a set of uh, settlements, we call it a batch or a block, a new Merkle tree root is generated, a new corresponding proof is generated. We uh, then put those two pieces of data on-chain and on Ethereum, what we do is to uh, just to verify the zero knowledge proof. There is a pre-compiled uh, verification instruct instruction that we can use. It costs very little, about twenty two k gas, and we can settle thousands of trades within that little transaction. So, in general, it's a layer two account system modification instead of on layer one. Okay, I think there's a lot to unpack there. So maybe let me let me recap this to make sure that I've understood it correctly. So basically, you collect the data currently on chain, but it could also be uh, on IPFS or somewhere else. And then basically, the computation is done off chain, but the proof is then put on chain so that everyone can make sure that you guys are not cheating and the um, setup is done in a trusted way so as to make sure that... Um, the proof generation is also above board. So a couple of weeks ago, we had on the Optimism team, so Carl and Yingnang Wang, and they talked about Optimistic Rollup, which is the version of Rollup that IDEX is going to use, a centralized version of. Could you explain some of the differences between Optimistic Rollup and uh, the ZK Rollup that you guys use? I think the ZK Rollup can be described as proactive a proof based and the uh, optimistic rollup is more passive proof based or fraud proof based so in order for the optimistic rollup to work you have to figure out a way to incentivize a third party to make sure they can continuously to monitor the on-chain transaction to detect any potential fraud proofs 
right? Or, or to detect the um, inconsistency of data and then generate the fraud proof to make sure you know there is a a watchdog who are not a really member of your uh, alliance who who can you know just fight against you, right? The the challenging part is that you have to design the the way to incentivize them because if the if the application has been performing really honestly, then there's no way there's no fraud at all, right? So the other party will just feel, hey, you know, I have been wasting my time here because I didn't really detect anything wrong. So and I get paid. If I'm not get paid, I will leave, right? So if nobody is actually watching the application, then suddenly, you know, the operator will have a chance to to create a fraud, to to behave, you know, dishonestly. And then because there's no active watch watchdog there, then later, you know, after the period, after a certain time, then everything is finalized. You know, a, a watchdog, even they can find some inconsistency. There's nothing they, they can do because, you know, there's also, there's always a, a time uh, period, you know, the, the fraud proof can be submitted. After that, there's nothing you can do. So I, I like the idea of optimistic rollup, but if there's no way to create such a token incentivize uh, a mechanism, then I will be not willing to put a lot of money into such an application. But with zero knowledge proof, the cost is bigger, but every submission of data and proof makes sure everything works before that timestamp. So I'm 100% sure that all the data is, is correct and I can trust. So that's just my, maybe I'm, I'm biased because I chose ZK Rollup. I hope there's a, a way people can create that mechanism to incentivize people who are always watching uh, Optimus Rollup application. But I doubt. So what are some of the trade-offs here? So it sounds like, you know, ZK Rollups are giving us the scalability and security and all this amazing stuff. What are we sacrificing by using them? Uh, first of all, um, the zero-knowledge proof is not uh, uh, really optimized. Uh, this is a technology uh, of 10 years old, but really not have been uh, used in application in real world for, for some time. So we are bound by the performance of zero-knowledge proof. So with the current zero-knowledge proof libraries, we have to pay for actual cost uh, in production for generating the proof, right? Optimistic rollup is more like a economic design. It doesn't have really any understand uh, underlying, you know, mathematical modeling or uh, some other technologies to rely on to depend on. So if you you are good at modeling the the risk and uh, you know make sure people can uh, use your data to create a fraud, you can, you can do that without relying on other stuff. So so for us we how to make sure, you know, going forward, if people are working on zero-knowledge proof and, you know, bring us a better library, we can just switch to the other library. But we are not uh, scientists. We are not, uh, you know, good at math. So we cannot create that underlying library, right? Uh, so that's our, our limitation here. So we are basically just use ZK Snark, right? We are not capable of improving the ZK Snark a lot. 
well optimistic roll up. You don't have to rely on anything, right? So it, it, it's a modeling, it's a mentality that you, you allow people to challenge you. And that, that's it. That makes sense. So let's sw switch gears a little bit. We talked about this earlier, at least we alluded to it. So you guys did a token sale um, where you actually had to refund a lot of the ether that you raised. But the fact remains that you guys have a token. So what does your token do? Well, that's a good question. To be honest, we have been always struggling with the token economy. We certainly don't want to uh, turn our token into a security token, right? And uh, we don't know how to design a better token economy. We have been talking about this even like this week to you know, our own engineers that will say, hey, you know, this is not good, great, the, the current staking model. So right as of now, if you have RC token, you can stake RC to earn the protocol fees. Uh, a protocol fee is the a portion of the trading fee. Uh, it's actually the six uh, basis points of the trading volume. Every trade on every blueprint-based exchange, you know, six basis points of the trading fees is going to be taken into a protocol fee pool. And uh, if you stake for more than 90 days, you will claim your portion based on Uh, you know, how long and how many tokens you have staked there. So, so, so you stake, you get the protocol fees. That's it. So it's a passive staking, meaning that uh, you don't have to do anything else besides staking, which is not good um, because passive means, you know, it's more like a, a security, right? You, you back stock, you, you get the, the earning. So going forward, we may want to, you know, incorporate with uh, DAO, to make sure people have to stake and they have to vote or something like that to, to make sure uh, active users really have more, uh, will benefit more from the protocol fee uh, instead, of, instead of just uh, passive staking. Uh, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm, I'm a big fan of DAO. Going forward, I think we will also create a looping DAO to make sure a lot of parameters are governed by uh, looping token holders, not ourselves. But for the, the token, I even think maybe a security token model is the best. If you, if you really believe something, you should be just passive. Why, why should a project team require you to do some do certain thing to, to make a profit, right? You have already invested in the, pro, in the project to hold tokens. You should just do nothing. But uh, it's going to uh, work against the security law. So I'm still uh, you know, debating internally with our team. Uh, but going forward, I think we will try different things to make sure that the average staking is going to be improved. Yeah, so that's the current status of the, the looping uh, staking. But as of now, I think this, the staking reward is like 2% annual, annually right now. But going forward, I don't know how, how much it's going to be. 2% is good enough. I appreciate your candidness. I think this is uh, commendable. So... We'll talk about this in a little bit. So I know you guys also took part in the DXDAO in a fairly large way. But so basically, if, if you um, are talking about the LRC token kind of becoming governance token of some sort, what kind of parameters do you see being set by the LRC token holders? Is it things like which tokens to list or what trading fees to take or something else entirely? So there are two sides of parameters. One side is the protocol-wise uh, parameters, such as 
the protocol fee percentage from right now is six basis points. Maybe it will change to a different value. Uh, the other parameters will be like how many LRCs should a DEX operator hold before they can open a looping DEX, right? And there are also a lot of per DEX parameters, like how much uh, trading fees they will charge. And that part is totally controlled by the DEX operator. It's not uh, controlled by us or by, or by any other parties. Uh, we need to give DEX operators or owners the flexibility to control those uh, parameters. Otherwise, they will not choose Loopring. They will choose a Loopring clone who allows them to you know, uh, control those parameters. So we figured you know, whatever they can do with Loopring, they should, whatever they can do with like Binance, like Saxis, they can do with Loopring. So that part we are not going to control at all. So, so the protocol-wise parameters will and should be uh, governed by the, the DAO. The one thing I really don't like DAO or have concern on DAO is that most people are not really interested in participating in voting or daily governance, right? You know, people just, most people are just lazy, including me. If I don't vote, if it's not, a, voting is not bring me a, a benefit, I would tend to, you know, just watch some TV, right? So it turns out most DAO users, they don't contribute. We, as a, as a bad example, we are a, like one of the top 10 token holders in DX DAO, but we didn't really being, we haven't been really active. We didn't really participate in a lot of voting. So we, we, we feel sorry about that. So uh, as a result, we propose to give our DAO token to other token holders. So say, hey, we are not really active. We feel sorry about that. We are too busy with our own project. We are willing to give these tokens to anyone who wants uh, you know, be active, right? So not being active is a big downside of DAO. Maybe there are ways to, to make change this, uh, but uh, I think, I don't know the term. I'm, my English is not native. There's a term that, uh, you know, if some, some uh, elites, they, they govern a small economy a, a entity, and there are like a normal users, everybody to govern the uh, entity or organization, right? I tend to believe that at least they are better at governing instead of you know normal users, like uh, one vote per user, right? If you look into any uh, a lot of democracy countries, people have to you know elect some uh, some people to represent them to make better judgment call, right? Not themselves, right? I totally appreciate what you're saying. So basically what you're saying, it's totally legitimate to have an interest in being a stakeholder without wanting to participate in the governance and just saying, I want to invest in you as a project, but I don't want a say or I don't need to exercise my say. And basically having that be legalized under security, if that didn't trigger all kinds of security laws, you'd be in favor of that for Loopring as well. Yes, that's true. I have uh, one last question on the protocol before we move on uh, to like the wider ecosystem. Um, so obviously the smart contract is central to your protocol. Um, tell us about um, the security level that you have on that. So basically, has it been audited? What's your process in that area? Uh, yes. Uh, so for every protocol version we put into production, we have a third party 
who have done the auditing for us. For uh, the second major version, we even have a third party to run this formal verification. So I don't know whether that works because that really didn't find any bug at all for us. <laughs> the, the manual inspection of the code is actually helping a lot because uh, I think the users, uh, their experience uh, you know, bring a lot of lessons they learned, uh, experience that they, they, uh, they have to us to, to improve the code base. But uh, uh, formal verification, uh, we tried once. It didn't really help us. Maybe it's because we, we had the, the, the mining inspection first and then the, but anyway. So for, for this 3.5 version, this new version, we are not going to have an independent auditor because we don't want to put the, uh, the new version into production. We aim to uh, deliver uh, Loopring 4.0 directly, uh, maybe in a few months, and put those into uh, that version into production. So it's, but in general, I think security is the utmost. We cannot lose security. We can sacrifice anything else, but not security. If we have one big issue in security, if people's token or ether are lost, it will take us. Maybe we just we will go down. And maybe we, it will take us like months work, you know, to to recover to where we are. So I don't want to sacrifice security at all. So there's this is the bottom line. Okay. So I mean, and as you said, that's what in your eyes the hallmark of a decentralized exchange is, namely that people self-custody their assets rather than giving the custody to a third party who may then lose it or you know be hacked or so on. So basically, yeah, then basically sacrificing on security obviously would not be the right move. So with our new approach, we allow the operator of the exchange to use people's fund, but only when they also open source their uh, smart contract. They also, uh, you know, audit their smart contract. So the the simply the, the most simple way to utilize people's fund is to, you know, put uh, most funds people deposit into a looping based exchange into like let's say Uniswap, and then you know they can they can make some money there, right? And then they can claim back their tokens proportionally uh, back. From the uh, the deposit contract, but again, I, I agree with you. You know, uh, users have to choose. You know, whether they want to stay conservative by not allowing uh, their token to be moved around, or they want to be more like profit driven to make sure their token uh, being traded or to be traded in looping based exchange will be actually earning some interest for them. So they have the flexibility. They have to make the call. We just make sure. Is possible there, and if you know we adapt a new version into our own decentralized exchange, we may stay very conservative not to do a lot of DeFi integration because DeFi right now it has a big risk of being too complicated. They are stacking on each other, and you know you don't know where the weakest link is, right? And the system is only as secure as the weakest link. So I, I would strongly you know, suggest against doing a lot of complicated DeFi integration. So what do you see is the future of the DEX ecosystem going forward? And what do you think, what do you make of some of the more recent changes that happened in the ecosystem? I think one of the most, one of the ones especially is like how 
a lot of centralized exchanges are building their own DEXs in, in quotes. And like the fact that Binance has this Binance chain or like, and Huobi is creating their Huobi chain and stuff, which are like, you know, pseudo decentralized things. But do you think this might hurt the adoption story for, you know, more truer, more pure decentralized exchanges? Yes or no? And how do you see this going forward? Well, in terms of DAXs, uh, on layer one, I would love to see a lot of different trading, very different uh, trading models to uh, become, you know, products, especially AMM. Uh, on layer two, I really just see right now, uh, ZK Rollup is probably the best solution to scale a DAX on layer two. Uh, as to uh, Binance Chain DAX or OKEX, Huobi, you know, if you if you really understand what security means, you know they are not secure, right? They can argue, you know, they are also decentralized, they are also blockchain, but not all blockchains are, are secure, right? But if you look at the code base, yeah, it's it's decentralized. You know, it's very similar to uh, Ethereum, whatever. But who are behind the consensus, right? What matters to security is the consensus has to be raised among different parties, more parties. They don't know each other. Uh, they cannot uh, easily you know, affect each other's uh, decision-making. Uh, with a lot of blockchains, you know, they're, they're miners. Their consensus is really just centralized, right? They have six machines, maybe even in one data center, right? All controlled by them, all controlled by people who they can influence or control. So if the underlying consensus is not uh, decentralized enough, you know, everything on top of them, uh, on top of it, is not uh, secure at all. So I'm not worried about uh, DEXs built on top of uh, OKEX chain, uh, Binance chain, whatever chain. It, it doesn't matter. But how do you educate users to be able to do this sort of differentiation? That's a good question <laughs> because most people just don't understand that, right? So it's, it takes a lot of education uh, to make sure normal people really understand uh, security. I think what you are doing, I think, is amazing for them. We don't have time to for for that, and we don't have the influence for that. But I think over gradually, people will realize. People will follow uh, people they they believe in. Like uh, right now, Vitalik is really pro uh, rollups, and there are a lot of uh, you know opinion leaders. They talk about sticky rollup. They talk about uh, uh, security. So I, I think that's that's good. What then to you is the last thing that we need to overcome to help DEXs reach the popularities that sexes currently do have? Because if you look at the if you look at the global trade volume, it's like on the order of one percent or something that happens on DEXs and all the rest is on centralized exchanges, right? First of all, you have to, you know, admit those trading volumes on centralized exchanges are a lot of, it's, you cannot say they are uh, real, right? M maybe a portion of them are real. Some exchanges are more real than others. Uh, but yes, I agree that, uh, you know, uh, sexes are still dominating. We have been thinking about this. And our answer to the current challenge is a smart wallet app so that people don't have to learn about uh, uh, their private keys, their uh, phrases, um, they don't, they just need 
a secure network to make sure they can help recover their uh, private keys. So a smart contract that speaks the same language that normal users speak uh, with uh, a good user experience, uh, with sufficient uh, DeFi integration, but not too complicated DeFi integration, so that they can hold the wallet uh, and then make money, right? So that will, in my opinion, be a killer app for the massive uh, users. And actually, that's what we are working on. So to offer, especially for the Chinese market, a, a mobile app uh, with, with a small, smart wallet mobile app with Loopring built in. So they don't have to uh, use, uh, you know, MetaMask, uh, use, uh, you know, import their wallets, right? So the user experience is going to be like very smooth. But we, this is just my, my answer, but not uh, necessarily to be, uh, you know, uh, successful in the future. We need to give it a try. Uh, I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of DeFi projects, they are just trying, right? Our approach is different, not, not in terms of we are providing a smart contract, but we are really targeting the people, the user base who are not pros, right? They, they are just normal users. Uh, they don't, don't want to learn a lot. Uh, they don't listen to what you guys are offering, right? They don't listen to my podcast or my uh, uh, live streaming. They just uh, want to download something to make money. That's it. You know, they, they're not pros. So when's this smart wallet coming? Uh, we are testing uh, an internal version right now. So hopefully um, later this year, uh, in probably in July, it's going to come out, but mainly for the Chinese market. I think regulation is something we really want to focus in the future. So we don't think we have the, uh, the, the resources to get uh, regulated in other countries. I think DeFi, blockchain, crypto, eventually it will be part of finance. So it's going to be highly regulated locally. Uh, we want to get locally uh, regulated in, in China. But the technology is going to be open source to other uh, to everywhere. Cool. And this, this smart wallet that you'll launch later this year, is it going to have, I mean, you said you want, to, you want it to be secured by the network. So does it have like social recovery features? Or if I lose my mobile phone, how do you make sure that I don't also lose my assets? Yes, that's the way we, uh, we are going to provide the, the recovery. So it's based on social uh, network uh, relationships. Right now in China, they use uh, WeChat. So we are going to integrate with WeChat so that uh, um, if you, you lost something, you can use WeChat to raise to your friends, your secure network to make sure they, they know you are you and then they can help you to recover. So uh, we are also going to support uh, hardware as a uh, garden. And we are also going to offer a centralized uh, garden service to make sure you know, we are going to act uh, uh, as the first, uh, you know, uh, responder to, to recovery. A lot of features will be added, but uh, I think we are going to make sure this is a, still a decentralized uh, uh, wallet, non-custodial wallet, which can uh, integrate with Loopring Exchange uh, natively to, to make sure people, when they get on board on Exchange, it's going to be much easier. They don't have to learn a lot of terms. Daniel, thank you. This was super fascinating. And I think the Chinese user pool 
obviously is enormous. So we wish you the best of luck. And uh, I hope this uh, becomes a success because this sounds super cool. Thank you for being on. Thank you. Uh, hopefully going forward, we can also integrate uh, the, uh, the ring uh, style on-chain you know, uh, trading experience into our wallet. So hopefully we can work there. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.